How are you doing? Still with us? Good. If you have your Bible, you might wish to open to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't, don't worry, it'll be a big screen behind you. We, as uh, if you've been trucking along the last few weeks, we know that we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're on week seven of what could be the longest series of my life. We'll be finishing in February 2014. Um, I'm going to read the next section for today, which is uh, verse 17 of Matthew 5, through to verse 20. So we're going to make great progress and do four whole verses today. That's good. Don't misunderstand, Jesus said, why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think it's really interesting and significant that Jesus heads here next. Sermon starts with his text, as it were, which is the Beatitudes. And then, as we studied last week, he starts off with an inspiration, really. You know, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Don't hide that light under a, under a bowl, but release that light. Set it shining bright so everyone can see it. Exciting, stirring stuff. And then he heads right into the, this little section here about, about the law. Before he dives into the detail, which we find through the rest of Matthew 5 and, and 6, Jesus puts down a strong marker. And before we get too deeply in this, I wanted to look at why it was important, certainly from Jesus' perspective, to deal with this right now. And then we'll unfold the principles as time goes on. So why did Jesus head here next? Six reasons. Number one is, first of all, the Beatitudes were very different to what they'd heard before. Very different from the way they were usually taught. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that, that my kingdom will be built on different principles. They were good on principles. They've got lots of principles. They were laid out clearly. They practiced through them that, through their religious life. But Jesus said, there's going to be a shift in emphasis. I'm going to give you a different set of principles. And because it was different, because it was a departure, Jesus needed to show the continuity. He needed to show how this tied in, this new teaching, this new kingdom, how it tied in with history, how it tied in with tradition, how it tied in with the structure of the law that they'd been brought up on. Reason number two, this would be the area where Jesus would be attacked over and over and over again by the teachers of the religious law. You see, to them, the law was the be-all and end-all. They were fascinated by it, they studied it, they taught it, every detail, every I, every T, that was what it was all based on. Jesus' teaching threatened them, threatened their religious establishment. And so, that was the place, the point, where they constantly attacked Jesus. 
So again, Jesus has to put down this strong marker right at the start. The third reason I think that Jesus addresses this right now is because Jewish religious life had been sidetracked by obsessive legalism. Hence, I suppose, the constant ongoing battle between Jesus and the Pharisees. You know, the, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders had made it all about law. Religion was all about law. Society was all about law. Government was all about this law that Moses had given. And for them, it was about the letter of the law. In fact, every single, as the old version says, every single jot and tittle, every I dotted, every T crossed, every law, every fiddly detail, they wrote, they wrote books to explain the books, and then they wrote books to explain the books that explained the books. In essence, it was everything to them. You know, we talk about the Ten Commandments, but boy, it didn't stop at ten. It's been estimated there were 613, not estimated, someone's counted, 613 different laws and regulations they had to keep. Apparently 365 were negative. 365 is a random number. 248 were positive, apparently. If you're interested in numerology, have a little play with that one. There's some fun stuff in there. But what had happened, you see, is they'd become obsessed with law to the point that they'd lost sight of mercy. They, they conveniently ignored inward purity. It was all about what they looked like on the outside, making them look good publicly, etc. And actually, justice had become very one-sided. Wonderful for them, not so good for everyone else. In fact, they'd become so obsessed with law that it was almost as though they'd gone so far as to forget God almost to exclude God from the equation, bizarrely. You know, a classic example would be, you know, the Sabbath laws, that Jesus got in trouble, didn't he, for healing on the Sabbath. Extraordinary, really. You know, and Jesus said, Sabbath was created for man, not man, for the Sabbath. In other words, they got things, as we've seen repeatedly, upside down. Fourth reason is that this whole topic would prove to be an area of great controversy in the early church. It would be something that Peter would wrestle with, something that Paul would wrestle with in every church he went. There was this big debate about the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, how Jewish did you have to be? You know, did you have to be circumcised first? I become a Jew before you become a Christian. And it took them a long while to wrestle with all of this. I was reading a, a, a book last night, actually, and and it said, isn't it, isn't it a good job that, that that kind of stuff's been dealt with? Because, you know, could you imagine if at the end of the service I had to stand up and give my appeal and say, first of all, I'd like you to invite you to give your life to Jesus and, and then perhaps you might like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and perhaps you'd like to be baptized. And then the other thing, oh, I forgot, here's my razor blade, who wants to be circumcised? <laughs> yeah, it's not about that. Number five. Jesus actually is about to dig into essentially a commentary on law-related topics. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be possible really for him to address those without him establishing a foundation first. And the number six, lastly, is that throughout church history, balancing law and grace was going to be the sticking point. Even, in fact, right through into the modern era, when you listen to what's being taught and what isn't, this balance between how do, I, how do I deal with law, legalism, how do I deal with grace, liberty, freedom, and how do I get the balance right there? So, 
In essence, before Jesus could address this issue, he needs to bang a stake in the ground. I'm going to get this sorted first. And then the rest of the sermon will springboard off that. Really, I think Jesus makes two points. He makes lots of points. But make two main points in this little passage of four verses. The first one is point number one, is don't for a second think that I've come to abolish the law. Don't for a second think that I've come to reject it or to oppose it or to cancel the law or the prophets. Don't think that. And no doubt, the Pharisees, the murmuring had started and they were starting to accuse Jesus of undermining the law and everything they believed in. The famous um, Scottish commentator, and he said, and I think our Scottish friends in New Zealand, so I'm safe on this one, there are apparently there are two types of Scotsmen. Any Scotsmen here? Okay, yeah, goodness me, Murray's big too, and Gordon. Okay, 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 if you had to run for the door. Okay, okay two types of Scotsmen, those who, get, this has been a long time ago, Murray and Gordon were like this. Those who go to church to hear the gospel being preached and the, those who go to church to see whether the gospel is being preached. Quite sucker, really. I think the impression we get, you know, is that certain Jewish leaders went to hear Jesus to, to preach, whether, to see whether he agreed with their personal interpretation of the law of Moses or not. That really was all that mattered to them, and they would accept or reject Jesus solely on the basis of that. And so Jesus makes this strong statement, don't for a second think that I've come to abolish, reject, cancel, or oppose the law. I mean, there are some strong lines in it. He says, he says, don't misunderstand me. He says, I tell you the truth, which is what Jesus said every time he was going to launch into something really significant. Down the bottom there it says, he says, I warn you. Now, this is, this is serious stuff that Jesus is getting into. And so, it's not that he's come to abolish, cancel, oppose, reject the law. And here comes the stunning statement. Here comes the curveball, if you like. Actually, on the contrary, rather than abolish it, rather than oppose it, I've come to fulfill it. The message says, don't suppose for a second that I've come to demolish the Scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish but to complete. And I'm going to put it all together, put it all together in a vast panorama. In other words, I've come to, to put it all together. I've come to satisfy its requirements. I've come to bring it to completion. All summarized in this little word, fulfill. At this point, I need to explain a few things about the law. First of all, the law was temporary. The word fulfill, by definition, implies an ending. And scholars talk about a 1,300-year parenthesis in history, from Moses receiving the law till Jesus coming to fulfill the law. What we're talking about is an era in human history, and Jesus says it's about to come to a close. First of all, it's temporary. Secondly, it was incomplete. In other words, the law on its own could not secure man's salvation in itself because man was incapable of upholding it. R.T. Kendall talks about the law as being unfinished business. And thirdly, the law was prophetic. 
all the sacrificial system, all the ceremonial system included in the law, all of that system pointed beyond itself. It pointed to some form of culmination. It pointed to some fulfiller. So Jesus said, don't for a second think I've come to abolish, to cancel, to remove the law. I've come to fulfill it. And then the second point, I think, that I'm going to pull out anyway, verse 20, and I'll read verse 20 for you. It says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teacher of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And actually, what we have here is the gospel. And what what Jesus is saying is you might be extremely impressed with your own self-righteousness. I mean, you've made that clear. But I want to let you know, I'm not in the least impressed. The Father and I, we're not impressed by your acts of righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 described our own acts of righteousness as being like filthy rags, actually, in God's sight. And then if you read through verses 21, through the rest of this chapter at least, actually Jesus shows them how inadequate even their high interpretation of the law is. He explains how even though they think that murder is a terrible thing, actually angry thoughts are breaking the law. Though you think that committing adultery, fornication is filthy, even playing with that stuff in your mind is sin. The point is that even man's very best, the Pharisees represented man's very best self-righteousness, even Man's very best couldn't remotely be good enough to meet God's standards. He said, to get into God's standards, you're going to have to have, to have a righteousness that far surpasses even the Pharisees' very best efforts. And you could almost imagine a sinking feeling, couldn't you, as they looked at these wonderful, supposedly godly, holy, impressive men and thought, there's no way I can accomplish that. It's as though Jesus says, absolutely, that is the point. And here comes the gospel. Because I am going to do that for you. Your righteousness is not going to be earned, it's going to be imputed. Right, which is a long word, I'll explain essentially what that means. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We could be made right. We can never make ourselves right. And even our very best righteousness is so far short. And Jesus is saying, you're going to need a righteousness that far exceeds that to get into the kingdom of heaven. And our shoulders sink. And then Jesus says, but don't you worry, because I'm going to do that for you. And again, this is a remarkable statement, because what it's doing is it's turning religion up on its head. See, righteousness is not something you do. Righteousness is something Jesus did. Okay, I re-emphasize that. Righteousness is not something that you do. It is something that Jesus did. Righteousness, that, that position of right standing, relationship with God, is not something you accomplish. It's something that you are made. Because righteousness is not earned, it is imputed. It is given. It is placed upon us. That robe of righteousness is given to us whether we deserve it or not. 
And then it goes on essentially from there. Righteousness is not something you become on the inside if you work hard enough at it on the outside. That was the Pharisees' theory. As long as I get everything externally, as long as I obey all 613, as long as I get all that stuff right, that that's going to make me righteous on the inside. But actually, righteousness is something that you produce on the outside once Jesus has made you righteous on the inside. So righteous living is actually the consequence of a heart made right with God, not the other way around. A heart isn't made right with God as a consequence of our righteous living. We could never do that. The law proved that well and truly. You see, in order for that, any of that to happen, in order for us to receive this imputed righteousness, somebody, Jesus, has got to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Somebody has got to do it. Somebody has got to be the culmination. Somebody has got to be the fulfillment. Okay, before I get into that any further, I'm going to summarize the law for you and break it up into three different categories. Lots of different laws covering lots of different areas, but in essence, it comes down to three things. Number one is the moral law. Moral law is the standards, the standards that God's holiness demands. This is God's heart. This reflects his heart. It reflects his character. It's centered on the Ten Commandments, of course, as we know, represented through many other different laws. So that's the moral side of it. The second one is the ceremonial law. And ceremonial law is the way that God wanted his ancient people to worship him. And so we've got the sacrificial system, we've got the priesthood, we've got the layout of the tabernacle, the temple, all of that is significant. Listed in great detail through the first five books of the Bible. And the third breakdown is the civil law. And civil law is the way that God called his people to govern themselves at that time and in that context. But the point that I want you to see out of this is that all three of those all of them were in preparation for Jesus' coming. Because in essence, the law was temporary, the law was incomplete, and the law was prophetic. And again, this picture of a 1,300-year of a parenthesis, a bracket, a pause in history. As I was walking this week, I was pondering this. I had this kind of picture in my mind of, of, of moving from one room into the next, and we find ourselves in this one room, which we call the law. And in that room, there is a code of conduct. There's a set of ethics, if you like. There's ground rules. There's a way of living that we will live until the door at the other end is opened, and Jesus is the door, until that door is available for us then to pass through into the next room, which we call the church age. We call the new covenant, we call the dispensation of grace. So the question then becomes, how did Jesus fulfill all of that? Jesus had to fulfill the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. So first of all, what does the word fulfill mean? And as I've already hinted, really, Jesus is going to bring about the event, the culmination to which all of the law and all of the prophets were pointing. 
In other words, all of the moral law, all of the ceremonial law, all of the civil law needed to be perfectly satisfied. Every condition of the moral law had to be met. Every prophetic detail needed to be fulfilled. Jesus had to fulfill, complete the moral law. No one could do it. Only Jesus could do it. But that meant that Jesus had to perfectly obey every single detail, every statute. He had to meet the flawless standards that the Pharisees were falling short of. He had to strictly comply with every specification. He had to dot every I and cross every T. Secondly, Jesus had to fulfill the ceremonial law. Jesus was to be the fulfillment of everything that the law foreshadowed. See, the ceremonial law was what we would call a type or a shadow. It's a prophetic picture of what's to come in the future. A shadow or type is a picture or a person or a story or an event or an object that pointed to something far greater. It painted a picture it gave detail and it prepared people's hearts for when the real thing would come down the line. Hebrews chapter 10, the whole chapter is relevant to this, but verse 1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It needed to be fulfilled. New Living Translation says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. You're probably familiar with the old Augustine quote. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. In other words, everything that was in the Old Testament was revealed. Suddenly it became clear, it became obvious in what Jesus did. Every little piece of symbolism, every little detail of the law was revealed. And actually, if you look back into the Old Testament, you can see the New Testament. You can see Jesus hidden in every story, in every prophetic quote, in every law. Every sacrifice, every feast, you know, the the actual layout of the tabernacle, what the individual pieces of furniture represented. The the priesthood, you can read in great detail about the clothes they had to wear and the function they had to fulfill. Every single one of those details pointed to Jesus. Various sacrifices, again, all of them taught something about Jesus. Don't have time to go into it today, but the burnt offerings, The sin offerings, trespass offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, all foreshadowed or prefigured some detail of what Jesus would do on the cross. But the key to this is, that's the shadow. Then Jesus came and he was the real thing. He came and he did it. Still in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices and again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, capital H, capital P, meaning Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin. Good for all time, encapsulating all those other individual sacrifices. Then he sat down in the place of honour at God's right hand. In other words, Jesus would have to fulfil all the Mosaic legislation. Jesus would need to keep the Sabbath every week of his life. 
Jesus would have to keep all the festivals. That included going to Jerusalem three times a year, included Passover. You know, it's significant that Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples just before his crucifixion. All the other feasts, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Tabernacles, Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, all of that, Jesus would have to perfectly keep the fulfillment, the, the details of that, every year of his life in order to qualify as the fulfiller. Not only that, Jesus would need to fulfill every single prophetic claim. We could have great fun, but it would take far too long opening up Isaiah, opening up Daniel, opening up Deuteronomy, actually, and reading some of the prophecies and seeing what Jesus did. Psalm 22. Haven't got time for that, so I'll read you one, probably the most famous one, the most powerful one, Isaiah 53. Verse 5. Jesus had to fulfill this. Every I dotted, every T crossed. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So to summarize all of that, Jesus here is making the most amazing statement. The most amazing thing they'd ever heard. What Jesus is saying right here is, I am that person. I am that event. I am the culmination. I personally will fulfill every word of the law and the prophets. So in these verses, he's making a stunning prophetic promise, most of which will be fulfilled on the cross. So when Jesus said, it is finished, what he was saying was, mission accomplished. He was saying, all of the law, every law is fulfilled. All of the prophets, every prophecy is fulfilled. Another R.T. Kendall quote. Moses gave the law, but he couldn't fulfill it. Joshua perpetuated the law, but he couldn't fulfill it. King David loved the law, read the Psalms, but he couldn't fulfill it. The prophets upheld the law, but couldn't fulfill it. The Levites carried out the law, but couldn't fulfill it. The prophecies and the Sadducees argued about the law, but none of them could fulfill it. But God, Moses promised that God would raise up one like himself. Deuteronomy 18, 15. It was Jesus of Nazareth, and he did it. Once Jesus uttered, it is finished, the law was fulfilled, it was satisfied, and it was completed. The world moved into the next era, the church age, the dispensation of grace, what, what the Bible calls actually the last days. So that is the case. That brings it now into our paradigm, to where we are today, because that's the era that we are living in. And hence, the question rises, I think, at least for me, that what then do we now do with the law? Are we obligated to keep any or all of the Mosaic law? How closely should we attend to it? What happens if we break it? So that's the question I'll spend the last 10 minutes looking at. What do we do now? What do we do now with the law? Start off by saying this. Essentially, there are two ditches. There are two extremes. There's a ditch on either side of the road. The first ditch is a return to heavy legalism. 
uh, and we put ourselves under a pressure to comply with all of the law and we, all the guilt that, that that will produce inevitably. What, what I've heard creatively called the new old covenant. In other words, thank you for Jesus. I recognize what Jesus did, but let's go back into the old covenant and we've got to, this is how we've got to live and this is what we've got to do. Not, without really living in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And what we do if, we, if we, we get into this ditch is actually all of the negatives of the old religious system, all of the traps, we live in that and we do not live in the freedom of resurrection life. I don't know if you, you know Christians like that who actually retreat actually out of true biblical Christianity into this form of legalism. You know, Christians of all denominations, all shapes and sizes of ages can get sucked into that ditch. It's a dangerous ditch. However, there's a ditch on the other side of the street. And the ditch on the other side of the street these days tends to be called hyper-grace. You might have heard it called easy believism. Something like this. Don't worry about all that tight legalistic stuff. We're enlightened now. We're progressive. Everything has moved on. That's, I think that's equally dangerous. Completely ignore all of that and say, Jesus set us free. Now I can do whatever I like because he's forgiven me. There's another position, I think, that, that is quite trendy these days. And I'm going to make a statement. You know, we are not more spiritual if we take ourselves back into the Old Testament and try to make ourselves all Jewish. You know, we don't need to do that. You know, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. Jesus did it. He said it is finished. Now, don't get me wrong, there is tremendous richness in all of that ceremonial law. It's fantastic stuff. It, it, it paints the most extraordinary and majestic picture of Jesus. It explains in detail how Jesus did what he did, why he did what he did, how he did what he did. I think it's fascinating, I think it's extraordinarily encouraging to understand all the details of things like Passover, all the individual feasts and sacrifices. And I think once we've got that, that's, that's so powerful, it's so beautiful, it's so inspiring as we come before the throne to worship God. But, Jesus has fulfilled all of that. And in no way, no way, are we obligated to keep any of it. I think there's a danger that we think, if we, if we go back and become more Jewish in the way we do our religious thing, somehow that makes us more spiritual. Actually, I don't think it does. So that's the ceremonial law. What about the moral law? Okay, the moment Jesus said, it is finished, the letter of the law was fulfilled, but the spirit of the law continued. The minutiae, the detail of the law, disappeared, but the morality continued. The difference is that as Christians under the new covenant, we don't have the letter of the law written on tablets of stone. What we have is the spirit of the law written on our hearts. Let me read for you Hebrews 10. I'd love to have gone through this whole passage. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 33, a famous section. For Jesus said, For he 
talking about the Holy Spirit, says, This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord, on that day. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So now, it's not a question of complying with what's written in the book, but of cooperating with what the Holy Spirit has written in your heart. Now we're not living under the law, but we're walking in the Spirit. It's not about complying with regulations so much as walking in a way that doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit. Talked about that in previous weeks. This is going to involve obeying God's word, yes. It's going to involve following Jesus' teaching, absolutely. It's going to involve listening to the inward witness of the Spirit. It would be fair to say, Jesus made it clear, Paul and Peter made it clear that much of the Mosaic law is no longer relevant or applicable to us. But interestingly, if you go and you read the continuation here of Matthew chapter 5, what we discover quickly is actually Jesus is leading us to a higher standard of morality, not a lower one. He's leading us into a stricter love walk. Actually, they were missing the point. He was leading them, us into a greater degree of grace and a higher degree of mercy. Actually, the law had not been rejected. It had been transcended. Now, we understand that the new covenant outclasses the old covenant. And so in this, as hinted in, in verse 20 here, Jesus actually opens a door for a measure of righteousness that far surpasses the best that even the Pharisees could manage. And they were probably the most self-righteous people that ever lived. One of Paul's prayers, Philippians 1, verse 9, he says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. More and more. We're not talking about less and less here, folks. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that was what law was supposed to create, wasn't it? This, this holiness. So actually, there's a higher level. And then verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And that's what we're after. See, the problem with their righteousness, you know, and it's lovely to criticize the Pharisees, they're an easy target. Their righteousness was superficial, it was skin deep, it was external, it was egocentric, it was all about them. It was exhibitionist, it was, don't I look good? Jesus described them as empty shells, whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones, looking beautiful on the outside, on the inside you stink, essentially. That was their righteousness. But our righteousness is real. Our righteousness is internal. Our righteousness is selfless versus egocentric. Our righteousness is private, not exhibitionist. And actually, our righteousness is a fruit that we produce because we have the Holy Spirit within us. Yeah, and that's what it says here in Philippians 1, verse 11. You know, we don't comply with God's moral standards because external factors are pressing on on us, in on us. We don't, we don't comply because religious obligation is pressing in on us. We don't, we don't comply because we have this desire to press, impress everyone around us. We comply with God's moral standards because we have the spirit of the law bursting 
out of us. I heard it said recently that the Ten Commandments paint a picture of what the Spirit-filled church should look like. You know, obviously it was hugely important to them. Every one of those commands is, is, reflects the, the heart, the nature and character of God. It was right at the centre of their society, but they could never do it. They could never. Jesus proved that, didn't he, in his, his chunterings with the rich young ruler. And yet, if we will allow ourselves to be a spirit-filled church, we'll be walking out the Ten Commandments. That's what we will look like. I'd say we should be more like that than any society that's ever lived. In fact, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we should exceed the morality of the Old Testament because we have the Spirit of the law living within us, desiring to burst out of us. So as I wrap this up, praise God that we've been liberated from obligation to the minutiae of the law. Praise God that we've been set free to live by grace. But actually, in many ways, this is a tougher standard. Jesus described it, didn't he, as a narrow way. You know, as we've read, the Beatitudes are not easy to live out. But we have the Holy Spirit. We have God's Word. We have the church to walk with us. And therefore, we have everything that we need to walk in love picture that Jesus paints in the next few verses. Everything we need to walk by faith. Everything we need to walk in the power of the Spirit. And as a result of that, the church age should be holier, purer. It should be more powerful, more effective. It should be brighter and saltier, as we read last week. I would say that nothing should stand in the way of the advance of God's kingdom if we get the balance right. If we attend to the spirit of the law on the inside of us. If we follow Jesus' example and Jesus' teaching. And if we endeavor to produce the fruit of righteousness, nothing should stand in the way. Let's pray. Lord, we know that this is a difficult, sometimes controversial topic. And I know that to a large degree I can only scratch the surface today. I know they really struggled with this, the first Christians. And I think people struggle with it today. Somewhere down the middle of the road is that narrow way. Not, that, not a heavy legalism, external factors pushing on us, crushing us, trying to make us live a certain way to please and appease God. Not the other side, which is, hey, hyper grace, now I can do what I like. That old law stuff's all past. Didn't Jesus say it was done with? No, you fulfilled that law. And all we can do, really, Lord, is worship you. Because there was no way we could do that in our wildest dreams. But you came, you were the perfect one. And you came and you paid the price. You fulfilled every detail. And Lord, we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful that we have the spirit of the law written on our hearts that we don't need to have the letter of the law oppressing and intimidating us. Having said that, Lord, we want to be a people that please you. 
We don't want to turn our backs on the very heart and nature and character of God. Lord, we recognize that you've called us to be separate, to walk a pure and a holy walk. But thank you, Lord, that you've given us the Holy Spirit, the power of Pete to help us in that. That we have that convicting voice. We have one reminding us of the scriptures. We have the inward witness warning us. Lord, we're so grateful for that. And ultimately, Lord, we want to shine that light. We do. As we, as we learned last week, we want to be salt of the earth. And Lord, we know we're under no illusions. We can only do that as you, through us, resident in us, bursting out of us, produce the fruit of righteousness. Produce that fruit, Lord, in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.